Space. You can find us on Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Ghana, and all other major platforms, which now includes Alexa. All you have to do is say, Alexa, play Dead Headspace podcast, and you'll get the latest from every Monday and Thursday throughout Season 1. Season 2 starts mid-January, and we will be going to one episode a week. I am your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And today we are joined by author slash sweetheart of the horror community, Jonathan Jans. Hello, sir. <laughs> oh, Patrick and Brennan. How you doing? <laughs> Great to be here. We're doing pretty good. And uh, for, well, I don't want to answer for you, Brennan. Why don't you tell them how you're doing? Oh, you know what? I'm doing pretty good, but thank you for asking. For the audio listeners, Jonathan is wearing a shirt that I've seen on a few occasions, the Salem's Lot shirt. That's great. I think you said that's your favorite King book. I think I'm mistaken. Yeah, yeah, there are many in the running, but it pro- if I had to choose one, that probably would be it. Um, yeah, it's just there's something special, something magical about it. It's still, and I know he wrote it when he was young, mm. but there's just something really, really different about that book that appeals to me. So yeah, the shirt gets a lot of wear, man. <laughs> that, we all got our shirts like that. That's that's a great choice. Um, the only Stephen King shirt I think I have is I know it's definitely uh, Christine the movie. I, I like it. I wear it a lot. Uh, my mother-in-law got it for me for Christmas. Uh, needless to say, that's a good relationship right there. Yeah. But Brendan, what's your favorite King book if you had to pick one? Oh, actually, no. I'd go with Salem's Lot as well. Um, okay. I've I've jumped back and forth between Salem's Lot and it and. If I could include the Dark Tower series as a whole, that would definitely be in the running. But um, at any given time, it's usually Salem's Lot. For me, it's 11-22-63. It's just, I like history. I, I like how it's different than his normal stuff. And reading the afterword, I think it was at the end of the book, he talks about how much research went into it. It shows. And it was really interesting how he painted a, a world where if JFK did not get killed... I don't know which one I'd take, that version or this one. <laughs> what got you into horror? Uh, I think the, the first thing probably is where I grew up, the house in which I grew up. It was um, next to, you might have read this about me before, but it was next to a uh, cemetery. And that's where I played quite a bit. Um, behind me was this deep, dark woods. And then on the other side of us, we were on the edge of town. On the other side of us was this woman. People didn't take mental illness seriously at all back then. You just yeah. people kind of made fun of others or just didn't talk about others who had problems of that sort. But this woman was seriously mentally ill, and she would—I'd I'd hear her screaming at all hours of the night, and um, it was really disturbing. And uh, I think I think her husband ended up taking his own life um, in that house next door to us. So it was, I think that was the first thing. It was where I lived. It just, I think it, it really gravitated <laughs> towards scary things. And then my mom was just a huge fan of all things scary. She loved Twilight Zone. She loved In Search of the Leonard Nimoy show. And so that stuff was always on TV when I was little. And I remember back, you know, I don't know if you guys are younger than me, but back in the day, they used to, you used to go to the library and get albums. Mm. So instead of books on tape, there'd be albums on tape or whatever. And she would often get the, the tales of Edgar Allan Poe. So I remember when I was like five listening to The Pit and the Pendulum 
and the Telltale Heart, <laughs> the Black Cat. And those are not really the normal fare, I don't think, for five-year-olds. So I don't think I really had a choice. I think I was kind of pre, you know, I was, I was destined, I was preordained to be in this genre. Your mom's awesome. She is. She's great. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's all I know about her, but she's awesome. She's playing you vinyl records of, of the grandfather of horror fiction. Yeah. I mean, that's so cool, man. Oh, cool. Uh, I, I, you know what? I don't hear any authors talking about this one prose story by uh, Poe, uh, Eureka, uh, prose poem. Have you read that? You know, I, I think I've, I think at one time or another I've read just about everything. But that one certainly doesn't ring a bell. So if I did, um, it was a while back, and maybe I've never even read it. You know, it's basically in a nutshell is uh, his take on space. And back then, I, I want to say it was po- uh, post- posthumously published. I oh. could be wrong. It could have – don't quote me on that. But I know it was towards the end of his life at the very least. And basically, I know that, you know, scientists or – whatever they were, you know, whatever the specific titles were then, did not agree with his take on it. It seems like he was kind of more right than the conventional ways of thinking back then, which I think is awesome because you got guys like him, you got guys like Jules Verne that are writing about underwater exploration, space exploration. You got guys like Mark Twain who wrote this great series of stories about um, St. Michael writing letters to a... saying back and forth and and it it's just stuff that like the majority has to catch up with fiction writers which is why i think that this is important this is an important job man like think about it i know we're going way off base with my initial question but like the pandemic itself if you take art away i know but i don't know about you guys but i would have gone crazy within the first week probably (laughs) I think it's an important job, and uh, pulling back to yourself, because um, I'm getting way off base. What you do is very important, and you're very you're prolific at it, so it's it's very much appreciated. But um, listening to the horror vinyl records, how long did you carry that on for? Did you and, and what did you graduate from that, if you will? Graduate's a weird way to phrase that. No, yeah, no, I think that 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 led to. Um, there are other early experiences with horror and scary things, but um, it's funny. It's, it, it was always I was always really terrified of the stuff I saw, but I still would make myself watch it anyway. I remember the Thriller video. I don't know how old I was. I was maybe eight when that came out, and I was so scared when Michael Jackson turned into a werewolf. I was so scared. I was just absent. I was, and I was the same way. I remember watching. Halloween for the first time with one of my friends and it, all it took was the opening credits. <laughs> you know, that music starts. Yeah. I think pumpkin, like a jack-o'-lantern. Yeah. I was, I was out of the room, <laughs> but then I kept sneaking back and tried to watch more. And I think that's kind of my relationship. I've always been very affected by scary things, but I, for whatever reason, it's like my, I mean, it sounds like a cliche, but it is kind of like a drug. Um, I always keep coming back for more, even though it affects me. You got to channel it. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, at what point did you kind of realize that fear is your, uh, to put it the way you uh, kind of threw it out there, drug of choice and uh, started channeling it into um, writing? Yeah, um, I, I think that 
I, 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 Stephen King, you know, we talked about him a little while ago, but he's just, he's the one who I, I just, I felt like my, I can't imagine my life if he, you know, George Bailey and it's a wonderful life. Like George Bailey ends up touching so many lives. Mm-hmm. King would be like the George Bailey in this situation. And I'd be a little bit like Harry Bailey who fell through the ice and would have drowned without him. <laughs> Because I was just adrift. I was, um, I mean, not like when I was 14. It's not like I was into a bunch of bad stuff, but I just had no self-confidence. I thought I was an idiot. Um, and King came along in this book I read, The Tommy Knockers, showed me that I wasn't an idiot. I just wasn't reading the right books. And I didn't know that it could be like that. I, I didn't know that the experience could be like that. So um, that's that's what really, you know, buoyed me and started to get me feeling better, kind of rehabilitated me and my, my mental or my self-esteem. And then toward the toward the end of high school, I'd read several King books by then. And I just loved the way they made me feel. And I began to have that urge to make others feel the same way. And so I started to write my first horror novel when I was a senior in high school. And it was just total dreck. It was terrible. Um, but that. <laughs> I guess when I started to try for the first time to write something, it would be a long time after that before I really got serious about it. But I at least dabbled back then in high school. King has this way of writing that uh, you're right. It has, it has that heart to it. And it's, you know, even the stories that aren't as impactful as a Salem's lot uh, as, as it are still, are still impactful, are still memorable. Um, and he has this way of writing that just sounds like somebody sitting next to you at a bar telling a story that sucks you in and makes you think, you know, I think I could do this and I want to take a crack at it. And, you know, after you try, you realize it's not quite that simple. Um, but I, I, I feel like there's so many writers that are going to kind of credit him in that manner. Like I, you know, I could, maybe I could tell a story like this too and affect somebody else the way this has affected me. Yeah, yeah. King, for me, I mean, you look at different writers, and and they're notable for this trait or that ability or this technique or whatever. But you talked about King. To me, it's just storyteller. You know, it's just he's such a great storyteller. And, And I feel like that is, I feel like his voice more than any other even it's like when LeBron James has a bad game, he, he has 17 points, eight rebounds, and six assists. You know, <laughs> King has an off day. He writes a book like Insomnia, which is, I mean, some people love it. To me, it's not as you know, it's still better than most people could ever write. Right. Um, but even at his worst, he's still good. And then <laughs> it's just like otherworldly. I was really yeah, hoping you, may- you were going to do a Tom Brady uh, <laughs> reference, but he's uh, in it. He, he he's probably a fake Manning fan. <laughs> are you a, are you a Bears fan, Jonathan? Because they made Tom Brady look awfully silly last night. <laughs> uh, you know what? I, it's funny. Yeah, I, I guess um, I guess Peyton Manning would be the guy I, I'd be because yeah, I'm I'm in Colts territory, kind of halfway between Bears and Colts territory. Um, I don't get into the NFL much, so I didn't know that that happened with the Bears and Tom Brady last night. Is Brady? This is an idiotic question. This shows how out of touch I am because, like, New England's been the evil empire. I don't think for you guys. You guys are uh, you guys are Patriots fans, is that right? Yeah. yeah, I'm in Massachusetts, and and Patrick is originally from Massachusetts. I thought I'd seen at least one of you talk positively about Brady before. Um, you know, here in by Indianapolis, they're they're evil. <laughs> they're always beating. <laughs> 
But I don't even know is because there was talk that Brady was going to leave New yeah, England. He's with, he's with Tampa Bay. He did go. Yeah, yeah. You're away from Belichick, right? Yep. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> They got they got massacred last night. I take it. Uh, they actually only won by by they only lost by one point. But um, Tom Brady forgot how many downs he had, and you know he called for the offense to stay on on fourth down, but they were they were out of luck. Um, <laughs> it was uh, unbecoming of somebody in their twenty first year in the league. But that, you know what? That's okay. We can talk baseball instead. <laughs> That's a little more my wheelhouse, yeah. There we go. Uh, both our teams are out this year. Let's not actually talk baseball. <laughs> Who are you guys? You guys are Red Sox. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, you know I'm Cubs, right? Probably. Yep. I, oh, I love the Cubs so much, and they 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 had the worst offense this year, man. Oh my gosh, and the 220 average. I you know you could say small sample size, 60 games, but. 60 games is, you know, that's substantial enough to hit better than 220. Yeah. I love my Cubs, man, but it was a rough year. I mean, they won the division, but then I think that they they were kind of exposed in the playoffs. Anyway, it is painful to talk about the Cubs and the Red yeah. Sox this year. It, it, it can be. It definitely can be. And I, I, I don't remember whether we finished fourth or fifth in our division, but does it really matter whether you finish fourth <laughs> or fifth in your division? Yeah. Um, right? You got be, had to be ahead of the Orioles. Uh, they really tried hard to get that, you know, to get that bottom slot. They they work hard at that every year. Take um, that, Richard Shizmore. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I won't keep our audience. Uh, I won't keep our audience on baseball for too long. But I actually am really curious. How did it feel to see the Cubs win uh, the World Series? Was it was it 16? Yeah, it was 16. Yeah, it was special. Um, I, I got to be honest though, when the rain delay happened. I thought the rain delay was going to postpone the game, so we went to bed. And it, oh, shit. I know, I know right? <laughs> but here's the thing. It's like I realize I, I, as kind of as, as a fan of the Cubs, I've, I'm kind of damaged. Like I have <laughs> childhood memories of, of just total collapses and things that should never would. They wouldn't happen to anybody but the Cubs. I mean, I know that you guys, I don't even want to mention, because Bill Buckner had a great career. But you before can, I was alive, so thank God. Yeah. <laughs> you relate because you've seen the video footage. and Yeah. The Cubs have had like five of those moments. So, yeah, so 2016 was, was really amazing. Even if I didn't see it live, even though, even if I had to wake up at like 2.30 and see it happen and then pick my son up and show it to him, um, it was still special. My favorite part of that game was the aftermath of Bill Murray being hammered, talking to the reporters on the field. <laughs> I, who, who in their right mind doesn't love Bill Murray? He, he's he, him and Tom Hanks are like, if you like comedy, there's your, there's two of the greatest ever. Yeah, they're just two of the coolest humans ever, right? Yeah, I mean, and then you just see him genuinely excited for his team, like you and the rest of Chicago. Yeah, it's awesome to see that. I feel like if you don't like Bill Murray, I know this is kind of an absolutist kind of statement, but I wonder if that's a sign of evil. <laughs> you hate Bill Murray. <laughs> right? It's definitely a metric to throw out there. Like, that could be a job interview question. Seriously. It's like, I'm probably going to have to terminate this. You're going you're gonna to have to go. <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I kind of grew up on guys like him, comedians like him, and he just seems like a good guy, too. <laughs> It's you know? like it's like he's he, he only sh- he, he's only credited in like two thirds of his movies. Like he showed like in Zombieland, he just shows up. <laughs> yeah. It's like the best moment ever. You're so happy when he shows up. It's like a movie. 
then he shows up. It's like, oh my gosh, this is like yeah. a different level now because he's yep. so amazing. He blesses you with his presence. Yeah. And, and and when he goes out, you know, spoilers for Zombieland, which came out like over 10 years ago, uh, <laughs> when when he goes out, you know, do you have any regrets, Garfield? <laughs> and you know that was his idea. <laughs> you, know, you know, darn well that whoever, you know, whatever scriptwriter they had, Bill Murray put that one in. <laughs> sure he did. I'm sure he did. <laughs> All right, off of uh, baseball and Bill Murray, America's favorite pastimes, I have a question about balance because you just seem like such a busy dude. You're you're balancing family and you just – I hate to say you come off as a family man because that sounds insincere, but you are a, you are a family first person. You're a teacher and anyone who has ever had a teacher knows that those hours don't stick between eight and three. And you're incredibly prolific as well. What? How do you do it? Yeah, I think that my my life, like from the outside looking in, I think a lot of people would call it dull. Um, things that I don't do. There are things that I I would like to do if I had limitless time. You know, like a lot of my friends, they um, like the the couples will go out together, or they'll go out and, and do things, or they'll uh, they'll go at golf or, or whatever, um, and, or they'll, I, I don't do any of that stuff. And I'm not against people who do, of course, I just don't. Um, because the three things you mentioned are basically the three things I do. Um, I'm either with my family or I'm teaching or I'm writing. Um, only occasionally am I doing something completely unrelated. And whatever else I'm doing, I, I try to tie into those three areas. So it's like if I'm, you know, I'll try to multitask. Um, and also like when I lift, if I work out, I'm trying to also listen to a book on tape, which try, you know, or an audio book, which will hopefully make me a better writer. Or if I'm working out, my son is down there working out with me. So it's family time. If I'm watching a movie, I don't, I don't, I don't play video games by myself or watch video or watch movies by myself. If I do that, then it's a family activity. Then my, my daughter is with me or my other daughter or my son or my wife. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if it's good or bad because, I mean, you could, I, I like to think it's balanced. I like to think it's healthy, but there are a lot of things that I don't do that I think bring a lot of other people joy. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's great. Um, but I think the reason why I am able to be prolific is because I am so laser focused on those three areas of my life. But I think, I think that, you know, if you, if you're happy, if you don't feel like something's missing, then you don't need to make time on your Sunday to go out to the golf course. You don't need to, uh, you know, have a bowling night or something like that. Um, so does, when you do sit down to write, does it feel like work? Do you treat it like work? Uh, there are mornings, there are mornings when it does, but, um, mostly I just feel very happy to be able to do it, uh, to have that opportunity to do it. Um, but yeah, I won't lie. There are moments when you don't feel as motivated. <laughs> there are moments when the words don't come as easily. Uh, so I don't want to sound too like Pollyannish or um, idealistic. But yeah, there there are times when it's hard. Overall, though, I'm just very. I, I get more and I get happier and happier to do it the older I get. And and just you know looking around and there's so many things that can go wrong in life, right? And so in, in, in my advanced creative writing class, I have two creative writing classes I teach, one for eighth graders, one for upperclassmen, like juniors and seniors. 
And we lead off with this excerpt from um, On Writing by Stephen King. Mm. And, and it's his chapter about almost dying. It's his chapter about getting hit um, by the other Brian Smith. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I forgot about that. Right, right. Oh, Brian. Yeah. Than a Brian Smith that scares a care, and I think there might even be a third one that, that I that I've met. But um, the, yeah, the the Brian Smith that's a terrible driver is the one that <laughs> life. And you know, I think that it's good to remind ourselves of how fleeting this all is, how ephemeral it all is. And so, the older I get, the more grateful I am to just have the opportunity to do it. And I and I and I hope my students feel a little bit of that. I know that they're younger. I know that they don't all want to be like published writers with their lives. But I hope they see it because if you're looking at King's situation, it kind of saved him. You know, writing kind of is one of the things that and his family that pulled him through that grueling, awful situation. And, you know, when you look at it as an opportunity rather than drudgery, because um, it is an opportunity. I think the more you remind yourself of that, the more grateful you become. And King, King did say, I think it was in that book, that the way the reason this is kind of repeating what you said, but the reason why he was so successful for so many years is because he had a routine. You know, you need a routine. Even though he was on drugs for a while, he still had that routine with his family and whatnot. Right, right. And and to kind of jump back to one thing, uh, if your family is happy and you're happy, that's all that matters, man. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I, I tell you what, too. And this is, there is no one size fits all. No. And and I had a regret the other day. I just started thinking about it. And this is a little bit tangential. But I I feel like I should say it because I've never said it anywhere else. You know, I think that we try to be, most of us, we try to be thoughtful. We try to think about other people. But we still say stupid things and we say things we regret. I realized, like, back in my early 30s, mid-30s, I, I kind of thoughtlessly, because I have friends who decided that they did not want to um, have kids, hmm. and you know, and I that's that's such a personal area for people, and I would sit there and ask them, why don't you want to have kids? Um, and and I, my tone was implying that you know, like, what's why why wouldn't you want to have kids? And and that was so. Um, that just and this doesn't have anything to do with this conversation, but it's just a thought I had the other day. That was so thoughtless of me to talk about it like that because it's it's you know there are people who lead amazing lives that, that never, they don't have kids and they're perfectly happy and um, I should never have said things in that way to certain friends because I feel like I put undue pressure on them or I made them feel bad you know because there are a billion reasons not to have kids um, so you know one size doesn't fit all um, in my particular experience you know it's I can't imagine my life without it. But I, I wish, looking back, that's a mistake I made in a few conversations. I wish I never would have said that to people, you know, just because I, I feel like I was really just um, obtuse. Because <laughs> well, we're talking about family, it reminds yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. That came to me when I was, like, getting out of the shower the other day. I'm like, you're such a jerk. <laughs> why, did you, why did you say that to people? <laughs> well, I'm sure it comes from a... Sure, it comes from a good place where you're like, it makes me happy, so why wouldn't it make them happy? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you. I'm sure they would get that. I hope so. I hope so. But you know, I just like it. Just I don't know because I think we're also I, I like I'm in my head all day. I see through my lens all day, and no matter how hard I try to be empathetic, I sometimes forget to be. 
and I sometimes forget to put myself in the other person's place. So thank you for letting me get that off my chest. It's just yeah. a, it's a regret I had the other day, and I've never said it before. I don't even think I've said it to my wife, but I just kind of wanted to say it. So thank you. Yeah, man. Um, and I mean, I've said this a few times, so please tell me to shut the hell up if it's annoying. But when I say that you're like the sweet, the, the sweetheart of the horror community, I don't say that to be funny. I mean it. And it's not just me. There's a lot of people that say it. I mean, you're kind of beating yourself up a little bit too hard, I think. And maybe that's rude of me to say, but if that's the worst thing that you've said, like you're, you're good, man, I think. <laughs> Well, I appreciate it. That's very, that's very uh, kind of you and generous of you. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, I, but I tell you what, man, and it's nice of you. I take that as a compliment when you say that, totally. Um, I don't take that in any way negatively. Um, but I just, yeah, I think I need to, just like, just like all three of us, man, I think we need to constantly try to be improving and constantly trying to see through others' eyes and understand their perspectives. Um, and I fall short. I fall short sometimes, um, and uh, hopefully I'll just do better next time. That's a great – well, that's kind of related to writing too because you never want to just be like, you know what? I'm good for the rest of my life. Like with me, I'm not a bad husband, but every day I want to try to – when I think – I don't think about it every day, but when I'm conscious about it, I, I'm like I want to be better to Tara, man. Like I just want to make her happy. I want her – you know, whatever it is, it could be something little. Like the other day, I was like, I haven't gotten her flowers in a while, so I got her flowers. So I'm like, feel she liked them. I'm like, all right, you did good today, bud. <laughs> <laughs> but I totally can relate to you. That's why I'm kind of bringing it up. Um, I think it's a good thing to always want to improve. Yeah. Brandon, why don't you? Uh, I don't know how to segue this. So why don't you take it over? <laughs> Brendan Sabus. That's, that's my role on this show. Um, <laughs> to to always, you know, look to improve and to just kind of keep that empathetic eye open. Of course, you you know you can't write. You can't write. You know, you don't even need to put anything else on that sentence. You can't write without that eye for empathy and being able to put yourself in those shoes. Otherwise, you can't create uh, sympathetic characters and you know all that good stuff. Um, so I'm actually kind of curious for personal reasons, cause I'm a teacher as well. How's your return to work been? Man, you know what? I love, I love it. I love, I know you're a teacher. First of all, that's awesome. Or at least if I knew that I forgot it. What, what grades do you teach or what do you teach? Uh, I do kindergarten through fifth grade music. Uh, that's amazing. That is so <laughs> that's well, awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Nobody, nobody usually tells me that. So I do like to hear it. <laughs> No, no, no. I'm just, I'm just kidding. It's, it's, it's very easy to feel underappreciated at the moment, though, as I'm sure you well know. Yeah, no, it is for sure. But I, I tell you what, I, I think that a really good music teacher at a young age, man, I, I, I bet there are going to be a lot of kids who remember you. Um, I remember my elementary school music teacher, Mr. Kaiser, um, so encouraging. And I, and I still love music, I think, largely because of him. Um, and my wife is a voice piano uh, teacher and coach, so she's, you know, we, we, we love music. I'm the least musical member of our family, but I have so much respect. I just think that that's, it reminds me of that Robin Williams um, Dead Poet Society speech where he talks about, you know, how uh, medicine and all these other pursuits are necessary to sustain life, but, but love and poetry and music, these are the things we live for. And, and I think that's so true. I think it's an absolutely indispensable part of life, music is. So I think that's, that's wonderful. Um, 
Yeah, and I and I love and I'm just as you. I'm sure that you're loving aspects of the year like you do every year. We love our kids. We love our job. Um, but the the adjective I would use is exhausting. Um, it has been so exhausting this year. It's just so um, you know. And I don't want to sound like I'm martyring myself because you know when my grandfather was in the hospital, I saw what nurses have to go through, and they've been doing that you know, all along you know, during the pandemic, they've been doing that whole thing. They deserve, I can't even begin to tell you how, 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 how amazed I am at nurses and how much credit they deserve. So I don't want to make my job sound harder than, than stuff like that, but, um, it has been really hard. It's been the hardest year of my career. Um, like emotionally, uh, because of all the changes it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just on a, on a nuts and bolts level. I'm disinfecting all the desks between every class um, and trying to keep kids socially distanced. And, um, you know, kids are feeling very isolated. And, and, and so we start to feel isolated too. I mean, when you isolate people physically, they start to feel isolated emotionally. And by the way, I am totally, totally for all the measures. I'm totally for masks. I'm totally for social distancing. I am like 100% into it. But that doesn't mean that it's all easy. And that doesn't mean that there aren't challenges that come along with it. You know, and you see kids, you know, who have to sit by themselves at lunch. And that's hard. That's really hard. It used to be like, you know, the 10 kids sitting at a table. And now here's this kid sitting by himself because they're only two allowed, you know, together. And so this kid's the odd man out, literally. And he's over here by himself. And the one time during the day that he could be social, he's, it's so depressing. You know, it's depressing for me to watch. How depressing must it be for a 15-year-old or a 17-year-old kid to go through? So I'm just emotionally and physically drained, man. I don't know how you're feeling, but that's how I feel. You know, I would echo all, not even almost. I think I would echo absolutely everything you said. Um, and one positive that I've really taken away, one thing I love about my role um, as kindergarten through fifth grade is I get to know my kids, I have them almost, you know, every year for a period of about six years. Um, I get to know them pretty well. And I've got kids that I've known for like five or six years this year that because they are, because they are nervous, because they are just in a very unexpected, I guess, unprecedented situation. And because the classes are smaller, the in-person classes are smaller, I'm getting to know these kids better than I ever have before. And, you know, we're, we're doing a hybrid model. Kids are in two days a week and they're out three days a week. Um, and the, the, the remote from home stuff is it's not perfect because for the most part, the classroom teachers are having to do two jobs at once. It's not feasible. Superman couldn't do it. Um, but the in-person learning that these kids are getting this year they're never going to see this again. The one-on-one -on -one attention they get for those two days a week, the small group attention they get is really something. And if, if we have to look for a positive, I really think that's it is these kids are getting that connection that you could definitely get some semblance of in past years, but not like when you have a group of seven in front of you all day on the, on the negative side, I am putting so much hand sanitizer on that. I feel like I have a sunburn on both my hands all the time. Um, <laughs> yeah. but you're right. It's, it's emotionally draining. And, you know, even, even in past years, you know, that uh, it's, it's a, 
it's a taxing job. You are constantly on your feet, um, both literally and figuratively, you know, thinking and adjusting. Uh, you get to the end of the day and you're tired. And this is there's an exhaustion I've never experienced before to this year. Yeah, that's and the other thing with us that I forgot to mention is we're doing um, virtual and on-site learning at the same time. So I'm teaching virtual on the same day that I'm teaching in per I have five in-person classes and then a virtual class. And ordinarily what our load is is five uh, classes and then a duty. And the duty for English teachers in our, in, our, in our school is often like study hall, which translates into grading time, all right? So I'm grading papers and stories during that time. Normally, this year, instead of doing that, I'm teaching a virtual class online. I'm filming myself doing the entire lesson to an empty classroom and then, you know, working with those kids, man. So it's, it's, it's so, yeah, it's so much more than it normally is. Um, yeah. So I'll shut up. Anyway, Patrick, how do you feel about all this? Uh, I'm not a teacher. I work with, uh, I work at a wastewater treatment plant. So basically I'm in charge of control systems for, uh, shit and piss water. (laughs) So what what I do is I, uh, just see my, my coworkers, uh, and I've worked the same Monday through Friday throughout all this. It's weird. My job's weird as it is because I see the underbelly of, Atlantic City and the county, and uh, nothing's changed on that end, and it's very strange. I've seen patterns that are weird. I see trends in people that don't poop and pee as much because the casinos were all closed for a while. So it's I can see the trend in the in the wastewater. It's a it's a very strange perspective, <laughs> and it's it's a job that is everywhere, but no one is. I didn't know what it was until I applied, and still, I just, I was like, hey, it says it pays so much, and, you know, maybe I'll get it. (laughs) (laughs) So, for me, it's been, on a trivial first world bitch uh, that I have is I haven't been able to go to a movie theater. That's okay. I missed that. The But I can happily say the last movie I saw this year was one of the greatest movies I've ever seen, Parasite. Oh my God! Have you seen that? I saw it on streaming and I loved it, but I didn't get so to see good. it. Amazing movie. They had it in theaters for like uh, three or four days at my local theater, and I, my wife was, <laughs> my wife was like eight or nine months pregnant, and I'm like, hey, I'm gonna be a dick for a minute. <laughs> I'm like, I gotta see this. It's it's not in the theaters after today. My friends are really into it, and she's like, "Fine, go." I'm like, "Yes, <laughs> <laughs> worth it." I remember, I remember something similar. I, um, m- my wife was eight or nine months pregnant with our first, uh, and I went to go see Iron Man two, and I brought her back movie theater nachos, and everything was good. There we go. <laughs> oh, it's good olive branch, man. What you, <laughs> what you got to do is when she says late at night or early in the morning, I want this. You're like, eh, okay. <laughs> You do get used to that, and it's 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 absolutely worth the effort because the alternative is just horrifying. And, and, and to be fair, they're carrying your child, so you're like, I'll get you whatever you want. That's very true. That's yes. very true. <laughs> so I would like to jump to something more serious, which is your grandfather. And um, uh, we said, well, Brennan said before we started recording, sorry. Um, you were talking, so I didn't want to interrupt. 
before we recorded, so I just want to send you my condolences too, because that's rough. I can relate with my grandmother, and I still miss her. It's been since 2006. Uh, I read your newsletter. Like you, she was she kept the family together. She was just a sweetheart, never complained. Little petite Irish woman that loved loved the loved you to pieces, man. Didn't never complain about anything. Uh, more specifically, what I want to talk about is one quote that you wrote, and it, it's very touching, and it's so simple. You even state that it's a simple quote. It's important for a kid to have encouragement. That's what your grandfather said to you, and you followed that up, and I'm paraphrasing this part, that adults tend to forget that. Um, I think that's true. Uh, there's a lot of times that, for example, and I know you're the guest, so I'll make this short about myself. For me, I've always wanted to be a writer. I've always wanted to entertain. It just so happens that I was also a writer, and my parents were always encouraging. Like, they wanted me to go to college and stuff, but, like, my mom, my aunt, I can remember when I was a little boy, like, I want, I was like, I want to write a game about pirates, because my cousin's, uh, he works for a video game company. He's made some big games, and um, I'm like, I'd like to write a, I'd like to be the guy that writes those stories. And they just sat down and talked it all out with me. And I'm like, I got this, that, that, blah, blah, blah. So without stuff like that in my life, and then the next one correlates to you two specifically. Without this one teacher in high school I had freshman year, which was creative writing, then again, or I might be mixing up, creative writing freshman year, senior year, electronic writing. Um, without that teacher that allowed me in creative writing class to write outside the box and encourage me to do that, Without her giving me the award at the end of the year, because they gave a little paper awards to everyone. Without her saying that I was the most improved, letting me read my comedy and my horror out loud, and being constructive and saying, you're, you know, basically, I got something here. Don't know if I'd be a writer. I want it without my wife, first and foremost. But without that teacher, without my mom as a child, I want to have it. So this is my super long way of saying I can relate to you, but your grandfather, and I would really like to go back to that one quote because I feel like it also applies to adults that often we are not encouraging. I'm not talking about the horror community. I'm talking about as a whole, as a species. So any way you want to reply to that, man, go ahead. That was a lot to take in. <laughs> That's great. It's, it's, it's touching it, touching to hear about that teacher who did that for you and your family members who did that for you um, because, like you said, it is a simple concept in, in theory, but it doesn't always happen the way it should. Um, I think we forget to do that. And I think the reason why it doesn't happen is because um, I just think that the, the, the human, and I could, it's fine if people disagree with this, but I think people are born selfish. You know, when you're a baby, you don't care about other, you don't care about your parents' sleeplessness. You don't care about anything but wanting to be fed or changed or whatever. Right. I think that, you know, some people never get out of that stage. Um, they just think about themselves. And then, you know, I think all of us have the um, tendency to revert to that stage because, again, we're seeing through our own lens all day. And then we forget how much we influence others, how much our the, the messages we send to others we're not cognizant of because we're so immersed in our own problems and our own worries and insecurities and fears mm -hmm. and desires and, and everything else. And, you know, the fact is, is that, you know, when we are in contact with other people, 
um, it's so important when we can to encourage them. And um, I think that's why it's neat, you know, people who do encourage us, you know, they're very special to us because they remember to do that. Um, and I don't think it's that common to remember to do that. I think it's more common to stay self-absorbed. Um, and maybe that sounds cynical, but, you know, why is it that somebody who is so encouraging stands out so much? I think it's because that's a little bit abnormal. I think that kind of selflessness is maybe not what we're used to. And so it really makes, it has an impact on us. You know, how many teachers did you have growing up? I'm sure you had some good teachers, but you remember that one. You remember that one because that teacher really took the time to make you feel good about yourself. Um, and so I think that that's something that we should strive to do. Obviously we strive to do it as parents, but I think we should strive to do it, you know, to other adults too. Um, because we never stop needing encouragement. Just because somebody isn't our dad doesn't mean that person can't impact us. Um, so I, I think I, I love it when I see, you know, the guy, um, you guys, I don't, you, Kevin, um, Kevin Watkins, you guys? Yeah, yeah, yes. Remember that name? Um, passed away, um, you know, and that guy, I think the reason why people miss Kevin so much, I mean, obviously it's different for his family because they had that special close bond, but Kevin touched so many lives in the horror community just by being excited for other people, just by, by thanking people for, for whatever they were doing or encouraging people. And, and, you know, he'd use that word rad and, um, and he just meant it. He meant it. He thought it was so rad that you would publish this book or he thought it was so rad that you would reach this milestone. And, and he did that for so many people. And there's a reason why that's special. It's because more of us should aspire to be that way. I, I'm actually jumping the gun. Brennan was going to say something, but I feel it's really important that I point out one person connected to Kevin as Darren. I'm probably messing up his last name. Darren Kapoff, K-A-P-P-A-U-F-F. -F. Um, sorry, Darren, if I messed up your last name. Those guys were like brothers who were really close, and that's how I know about Kevin. Um, I haven't read anything by him yet. I wish I have, but... Uh, Unfortunately, I don't have all the time in the world to read from all the great people I want to read from, but I have heard nothing but great things about Kevin. And I don't think it's the case of, like, he passed away. Let's not say the bad stuff. I think it's just he is a good guy. So that's – I'm glad you brought him up because, you know, today was the anniversary of him. Uh, as we record this, not as this goes up. Um, Brennan, I interrupted you, I think, so why don't you jump in? You know, you actually didn't interrupt me. I'm sitting here absolutely ruminating on that, um, Jonathan, on that point you made about how special it can be when one person encourages us and about how that sticks out, not just because they did it, but because of because they took the time and that doesn't come from everybody about how it kind of stands out as a stark difference uh, compared to the world around that, that relative around that teacher, whoever it is, that's, that's a really cool point. And I've never really looked at it from that perspective before. Um, 
and it kind of ties in with, you know, something I wanted to, not necessarily a question, but just something I've heard you talk about before and I wanted to bring up. And that's the idea of making sure to take the time to tell the people around you, uh, whether it's relatives, whether it's friends, or even whether it's authors uh, that have made a difference in your life with their love, with their relationships, with their works, um, that you appreciate them. Because, you know, I, I feel like that whole idea of mortality has come up more than once or twice or three times tonight. It's that idea that our time is limited. And if we, you know, speaking just about authors, if we appreciate a work that somebody's put out there, to just take the time to let them know. And, you know, I would throw out at you, Siren and the Spectre is a special book to me. I'm a huge Haunted House book fan, um, and I stumbled across that one when I was thinking about trying my hand at writing, and it inspired me to go ahead and try one. Um, and I, I did finish a novella a couple months oh, ago. Wait, 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 wait. On... Hold up. Is that the one I just beta read? That is the one you just read. Yeah. Holy shit. Wait, so, you be quiet because you are very <laughs> humble. This kid, this, he has been writing for a very short amount of time. I've been seriously writing with a novel list, being a novelist mindset for seven years. He's been doing for one. I'm just putting it out there, man. I didn't know you inspired that book. That that novella, I just finished it yesterday. It's, it's good and it's creepy. That's all I got to say. Carry on, sir. That's awesome. <laughs> I, I would just say, you know, if 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 it if someone reads it, they're not getting Siren and the Spectre Light there, but <laughs> they are getting a book that I sat down and wrote because I read that book and I said, I want to do this. This is this is something, you know, I want to make the time for. I want to carve out that slot to sit down and really give this a go. So this is me saying thank you for putting that book out there. And I appreciate your work, sir. That was amazing. That made me feel like a million bucks. So thank you so much for saying that. And I'm so happy that you wrote, man. That's awesome. And obviously Patrick is high on what you've done. That's so cool. I mean, I think he it's amazing. so biased, but he's it's, he, he it's has really to say that I've paid him. No way. No way. You're not. You're not Ken McKinley. <laughs> <laughs> McKinley has to pay I, someone to say his name. I, I, I've got a teacher's salary. Everybody knows that's a joke. <laughs> Everybody knows I'm not paying you out of my teacher's salary. <laughs> That's fantastic, man. And that, that means a lot. Um, I, I do appreciate it. I think that uh, I think that that's that's the thing. I think that we I think I think most of us are afraid of being misread. And that causes us to not say things that we have an urge to say. And, and our urge to say them comes from a place of um, of of goodness and of good intentions. But then we don't say them because we're afraid of how we'll be perceived. And I think that, you know, what you just said to me was amazing. Obviously, it felt wonderful. Um, but I think that, you know, the, the reason not to say that to somebody is because, you know, you, you're afraid that, that others like, so, for example, like I absolutely like idolize Joe Lansdale. OK, and um, it took me a while to and Brian Keene had to trick me into to going up to him. Um, but, but it's like Joe himself was talking about some of his heroes once I got to know Joe and Joe, Joe gives you, he's, he cuts through the crap so beautifully. Like Joe is the most concise, incisive, honest, sometimes painfully so person maybe that I know. 
But, you know, Joe will say, uh, tell them, you know, tell them, man. If you feel that way about somebody, tell them how you feel. You know, because he started to talk about some, some writers that he never got to tell. And he still regrets it to this day. And then he also talked about writers that he did get to tell, like Richard Matheson and others that he did get oh, oh, oh. They made to him. And that's still that's a cherished memory for him. And he feels good that he got to do that. But there are others he didn't get to say that to. And it's like, you know, what what was I afraid of? If I analyze it, what, what, why would I not have said that to Joe? I would have afraid to appear like a fanboy. I would have been afraid maybe that others would think that I was sucking up to him. I would be afraid that maybe I would, um, you know, speak in, a, in, a, in, a, in an incoherent way and make a fool of myself. And, you know, those fears are, are, are real. But you know what? Um, Jack Ketchum said this, D Dallas Mayer to me. And I don't know if you guys have read The Dark Game, but the story is in The Dark Game. He said, I'm not going to say it because I'm a teacher and I don't want to be on tape saying the cuss words. Um, but F, fear. It's like, you know, those reasons put those in a pile, those are so far eclipsed by all the good that comes from telling somebody how you feel, right? If somebody thinks I'm sucking up to him, screw them. Who cares, Who cares that they think that? Because I'm not. I'm telling him I love his work because I love his work and I appreciate him. And if somebody else wants to gossip about me, thinking, oh, you're just trying to curry favor with this guy, screw you. I don't care. You mean nothing to me. Joe Lansdale means something to me. He's meant something to my life. And he's meant something to me as a reader and a writer and as a human being. And he continues to mean something. I care so much more about his opinion than this little peanut gallery off to the side. Screw those people, right? And then when it comes to feeling self-conscious, who cares? All right? I'm sure I did say something stupid when I met him. But you know what? I feel good because now we've got a relationship. And, 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 and all these other authors I've met. You know, Brian Keene, when I first met him, when I first met Dallas Mayor Jack Ketchum, when I first met all these writers, I'm sure I sounded like a, a gibbering fanboy, but it was sincere, it was honest, and I'm glad I said it. I'm glad I, I was honest. I'm glad I was excited because I am excited about that kind of stuff. And so I think that we, I think that we just need to get over our fears, get over our insecurities a little bit, and, and it's good to do those things. It's good to say those things because you know what? And I'm not Lansdale. I'm not Ketchum. I'm not Keen. I'm not any of those people. I'm. But, but what you said to me, I can tell you being on the other end of something like that made me – I started to float off the couch, man. I started to feel so – that made me feel amazing. In fact, like it, I, I didn't even take the compliment very well because, you know, I, I feel so good and bashful. I didn't want to show how good it made me feel, right? But inside, I'm like pumping my fist. That's what we'll use the video for. We'll post video of you turning bright red. <laughs> me and Brennan talk you – know all the time, every single day almost, and he's never told me that. So the fact that I feel like now he's saved that to say that to you to surprise two people on the show. Perfect. I'm calling, I'm calling shenanigans. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm glad you did. I'm glad you waited. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I had I had something to say, and I totally it, – it ran right off the rails. So, Patrick, you want a segue? You can take yeah. my job. Yeah, Darren texted me and said, tell Jonathan I said what's up. He wanted to say hi to you. So I just want – I had to pass that message along. He's a good guy. I, th I think you guys have talked. Darren, oh. Darren K we're talking about, right? Darren – I don't even know how to pronounce his name. I don't know how to pronounce his last name either. Off, Kapanoff, whatever it is, he's awesome. Yeah. He's a huge-hearted, amazing human being. 
love that guy. So yeah, please say hello to him for me. Oh man, I just my heart just uh, got tickled from that. Um, I was I have a few notes, and one of them was uh, back to the before I jump into that. I do want to say, as far as like being genuine and stuff, as long as you know it, and the person you're talking to, it's a bonus. They don't have to know it. As long as you know you're being genuine. Like you said, who gives a shit what other people say? Because <laughs> I, I've i gotten accused of being a kiss-ass when I'm just like, what are you talking about? This is just how I am. So, I again, I can relate. Like, <laughs> sorry you don't understand people being excited about everything. <laughs> you know, I could. Yeah, if, if our world, if we would stop bashing what others are excited about and, like, appreciate the, the excitement more, think about how much more fun everything would be. Think about how fun it is when somebody's oh, excited about something, when somebody's passionate about something, right? It's yeah. so awesome. It's so fun, right? When you're excited about music or you're in, you know, you're talking about your wife earlier, right? I mean, it's, when <laughs> yeah. somebody's passionate about it, we need more of that, man. Let's let's fill those flames and let's let's all get excited. Um, life is too short to sit there like the two dudes in the Muppets up in the balcony, right? <laughs> That's Those not, are my dad's favorite characters. That's great. Waldorf and what's the other guy? I forget. Statler. <laughs> Statler and Waldorf. Yeah. yeah, they were named after hotels in New York. Okay, there we go. I mean, let's let's we, uh, those those guys didn't have any fun. I mean, maybe no, no. just fun being mean. They were la- They laughed a lot. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So. Kermit. Yeah. You and you and Josh Mallerman are just two people that I want to uh, extract your energy from, and just kind of when I'm feeling tired, just give myself a shot of a Jans or a Mallerman, and I'll be good for the probably year. Yeah. Um, Love that guy like a brother. True, there's a there's a market for that. Yeah. So <laughs> actually, this kind of relates to how you said, "Oh, I might have sounded foolish when I talked to." Joe or whomever the first time I, f- I definitely was like that when I talked to Mallerman when we first started recording um I talked to him quite a bit before through messenger but then like when we started recording Brandon texts me he's like hey dude calm down and I'm like I'm kind of fanboying right now <laughs> and the other guy that I can say this confidently is Jonathan uh, Mayberry because yeah. Weird Tales means so much to me, and he's like, beyond that, he's just such a cool guy, and Brennan said I was fangirling over him. I'm like, well, I asked him if he'd adopt me and Brennan, but it's not a big deal. <laughs> no, it's fine. That's that's totally normal. Yeah, not a weird, not a weird <laughs> creepy question at all. I'm not blocked by all of his accounts. We're good. <laughs> um I did want to say you, Brian Keene, and Joe Lansdale are a direct influence for me. Um, again, I'm not ass-kissing, so fuck you, peanut gallery. But um, no, in all seriousness, you guys are a direct influence for me with uh, how you make family a priority and in your own ways uh, basically say, like, here's my lines. This is what I'm about. That's it. There's no negotiation because of me. Uh, I mean – I work, I write, I read, and I spend time with my family too, and I love it. And that's the best way. If I could, not, if I could not work, that'd be even better. But you know, <laughs> so for me, I want to thank you for that um, because I know it means a lot for like a guy that has always wanted to write. Like, silly enough, I always thought like you kind of 
had to be a little bit different. And when guys at work started finding out that I'm a writer, one said, oh, you got to start drinking now. And like, I don't really drink much. And that rubbed me internally, not externally. Internally, that rubbed me such the wrong way. Because I'm thinking, I'm like, well, I got to pass with that. And that's like kind of a sore spot for me. And I'm just going like, is that what people think? Uh, screw him. <laughs> I just want to be a family guy and be a writer, man. So like you have granted me that uh, realization that's a possibility. So thank you for that. Hey, that's great to hear, man. You talked about the other guys. Yeah, Brian Brian is all about not letting me make any of the mistakes he made. He's had a great life and he's done amazing things, but he's, man, he is emphatic about certain things. And, he's, and, I, and I love that because it comes from a place of love, but he's constantly reminding me of what's important and to, to keep my priorities aligned. Um, and I'm not saying I need that, but, it, you know, I think it never hurt to, to have those reminders from somebody to respect. Lansdale, we talked about that um, not long ago, but Joe talked about how, you know, he, there's certain, you know, you, you make choices, right? And Lansdale has accomplished so much. He's written, he, he's won every award there is. And he's, he's, I mean, he's written for movies and TV and comic books and all these things. And, you know, if he wanted to, he could have had that rock star lifestyle. You know, he could have had, um, you know, multiple partners and he could have, you know, lived, you know, um, with, a, you know, d- done a lot of substances and stuff. And, and I'm, again, I'm not judging anybody. Um, but, but, but the thing with Joe is that he always just put his wife and his children first and, um, that's who he is. And, and, and I dig that. I, I, I like that to me, hmm. to me, that's, I don't know, that's appealing. It's like the other stuff just seems, um, I don't know. It's just not me. I would feel unstable. I would feel uncertain. It's just that would not be a kind of lifestyle that I would enjoy. Maybe I'm boring, but but I, I just really like stability. And, and, and I think a lot of creatives do. I think that's that's the stereotype. Creatives are are you know they're drunkards. They're <laughs> they're they're tempestuous. They 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 trash a hotel. All right. You know I think maybe it's because we see so many. You know, like we watch so many VH1 behind the music. <laughs> but it's, you know, Poe, like people, you know, if, if you just looked at the popular, you know, persona, it's it's all about the opium and it's all about this and that. And I just wonder what was the truth. Um, and I also I wonder if he would have lived longer, how much more amazing stuff he would have written. Um, yeah, but I don't think that. To me, that 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 tortured and destructive artist thing, that doesn't appeal to me at all. No, yeah, right there with you. The Poe that I love to imagine the most is a story about him and his uh, – <laughs> I'm not making fun of him when I say this, but uh, I am laughing at it. Him and his cousin wife um, at, in the commons of Boston playing leapfrog, and it's just – he's just a dude that's having fun, and he loves this girl, and it's just like, yeah, yeah I get it. Like he went through some crazy shit. Like, dude, who would want to be alive back then? We are in the best time that you could possibly live ever at this moment. Like we – you know, we go to grocery stores. We don't have to hunt for our food. We don't have <laughs> – our food is, and I use this term loosely, is regulated. <laughs> we, 
we have doctors that have medicine and back then i mean like you could die from what you can still die from like pneumonia now but like the common flu flu and all uh common cold and all that that could have killed you very easily i i don't know i'm not saying it's an excuse but i wouldn't want to live back then. <laughs> yeah for sure I was very uh, interested to see where you were going when you said we, we were alive in the best time. I'm like, I haven't heard anybody say that in like eight months. <laughs> <laughs> it is hard to say it during the pandemic. Yeah, no. OK, so completely <laughs> blanked on that one. But no, sucks. I, no, I agree with your points. I really do. <laughs> I had the same thought process. I totally agree that. Yeah, I mean, I think the people romanticize the past, right? And it, <laughs> yeah, the pandemic has been rough. But overall, modern times have a lot on times gone by. Yeah, yeah. Just, just medicine alone, right? It's much better than it used to be. In an interview you had with Brian Keene, I think two or three years ago, it might have been longer. Um, actually, I don't think – sorry, I'm, I'm double thinking what I was going to say. I did hear him say in an older episode that he uh, mentioned how you had an 11-book deal with Thunderstorm. I, I didn't hear anything else. I can't really find much about it. How? How? Like that's for me. That's unheard of. An eleven book deal. Yeah, that was because of Brian. Brian and then Paul Gobblers, the guy. You know, we talk about great people. Okay, um, all of you writers who listen to this podcast, any of you or this show, any of you who are interested in working with great publisher and there are a lot of great editors publishers in the business um you're going to be hard pressed to find somebody better than paul paul gobbler who's at thunderstorm that guy is the most um just honest and true and author he's more than author friendly like when we talk about things so so brian told paul that 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 paul should do a deal with me paul and i talked and then eventually he said, let's just do this 11 book thing. And that was incredible. So that was yeah. just limited editions of 11 of my books. And it was amazing. One of the best experiences I've ever had. But the thing with Paul is, is that during that whole thing, that whole process, since then, like he has, we at one point had this deal. Um, and the deal was for a specific series of books and he said, um, because there, there's a possibility of something happening with those, I don't want to say what it is, but it's like, you know, with other media, I guess we'll say. <laughs> and, and the possibility of that happening, Paul was like, well, if that happens, I don't want you to be, I don't want anything to prohibit you from having that happen. And, and I'm afraid that if there's another version of this out there, that that's going to scare off other potential buyers or publishers. And so let's not do the deal. OK, so Paul here is like leaving money on the table because he, he's got such a following, man. He sells out everything. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> he's just, they, they, they just do. He does some amazing work. So he knows he's going to make money, but he left money on the table in order to enhance my future prospects, right? What publisher does that? What publisher is that um, just uh, uh, so generous, so um, unselfish that he is intentionally not, not making a profit so somebody else can have a shot at something later on? 
It's just incredible. And, and I know there are other great uh, people in the business, but man, Paul is a prince. That, that guy's extraordinary. That's wow. That is pretty amazing. The short conversations I've had with him, I can back that up. And I know everyone that's talked about him like, likes him. His product is just, it's something that for me, for me, because I can't afford buying any of those books at this point in my life. <laughs> I can't either. It's a. It, <laughs> you, can't, you can't afford to buy your own books. It's <laughs> his books, I would not feel comfortable with bringing them outside of my house because they are just so beautiful. They are. They're it's art. It's it's artwork, man. So, I mean, we, we've kind of run in circles around your books for the last, like, almost hour now. So oh, wait, uh, you I would... write books? <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were a filmmaker. <laughs> Wrong set of notes, man. <laughs> oh, damn it. Um, I would love to talk about The Raven. It's been out for about a month now, a month yesterday, I think. Um, and what I thought was so cool about it, and I, I kind of want to get the uh, – inside the process here is I know you wrote that book to be, to have this standalone feel to it. Um, it's a post-apocalyptic book that kind of presents a snippet of post-apocalypse, which is, which is so rare. I mean, you typically see post-apocalyptic and it has to be ginormous in scope. It has to be 700 pages or it has to, from the word go, be a series and you just recently announced that you are starting work on book two blood country so i'm curious at what point did you say yeah this is a series yeah i think that um it, I, I felt like when i wrote the book it had to be it had to be self-contained okay i'll just tell you i'll just be honest. i forget which one of you mentioned this i think brennan it might have been you was the dark tower series mm. Yeah, I love The Dark Tower, okay? Love it. And in the back of my mind, I had The Gunslinger in mind when I wrote it. And The Gunslinger is notable, and it's distinct from the other books in that series, because, and I want The Raven, of course, to be its own thing. It's not going to be, you know, Jonathan Jans pretending to be Stephen King or whatever. But um, it is shorter than... Uh, drawing of the three, shorter than the wasteland, shorter, especially than like Wizard and Glass and the others get really long, I think, the more we go. And we're glad to go along that journey. But the Gunslinger, I think, is the shortest one. And um, I wanted the Raven to be self-contained like that. And I want to have this kind of spare feeling, all right, a, a, little, a little more um, like an adrenaline shot. I wanted it to be a little bit like a Western, um, and I wanted it to feel intimate. So in order to do that, there wasn't that big, you know, like World War Z scene, the Brad Pitt movie where you have the zombies running through the, the traffic jam overrunning. You know, you don't have a scene like that in The Raven because it takes place two years afterward. Um, and I, I always felt like, you know, if I wanted to go back and capture the apocalypse, I'd be able to do that later on um, in, in later books. But I felt like this book wasn't that book. This book needed to feel very self-contained. It needed to feel um, like the gunslinger because the gunslinger, I, I love how I love the simplicity of that book. It's really kind of an elegant book. It's kind of you know beautiful in that way where you have the scenes. Um, in the in the in the small town, 
where he ends up, <laughs> I don't want to give it all away. Uh, but he <laughs> ends been out for like 40 years, man. Killing <laughs> some blood in that town. And then you have the scene with the slow mutants, um, you know, I think down uh, subterranean moments, right? The moments with Jake, um, I think, are really just kind of lyrical and poetic. And they've got that amazing Western feel to them, kind of elemental. Um, so I wanted to capture those kinds of um, emotions and that sensibility in the Raven, um, but 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 still knowing that that the world could be opened up later on for a series too. So I guess I was trying to do both as I wrote it, but I was laser focused on the first installment. Sorry for being so long winded. You get me excited talking about this stuff, man. Hey, that was an open-ended question. So uh, we yeah. should obviously follow that up with what's your favorite installment if you had to make the tough decision of picking one book from the Dark Tower series. Oh, that's and rude. The, that question applies to you too, Brennan. I'm going to say uh, the, the Wastelands. Um, I just oh, I, yes. so much I love about that. So much <laughs> I love about that book. Um, it's just amazing. It's a work of art. I love them all, but that's probably my favorite. Brennan, what do you think? Um. I think if uh, if pressed, I'd have to go with Wizard and Glass. I really choice, that's my second choice. <laughs> <laughs> and I, 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 as I, I do love the Wastelands, obviously, but I think if I if I had a, a runner up, it would probably be Drawing of the Three. I just love the way, and I'm kicking myself now that I didn't see all the parallels between the Gunslinger and the Raven, because um, they are there. They are so there, um, but. I love the way that Drawing of the Three takes that kind of cozy, small mythos and just blows the doors wide open. Um, and it's it certainly goes from there. There's lots of different elements introduced after that second book, but it's the second book that basically sets the stage for what's possible in the rest of that series. Yeah, it's fantastic. In Wizard and Glass, that one, you know why? I don't know, man. Drawing of the Three is right there. Too. Wizard and Glass... The reason why I couldn't put that first, and this is actually a compliment to the book, Rhea, that character Rhea, I hate her so much. Back <laughs> <laughs> to that book. What a yeah. She's so awful. Yes, she's, she's so sadistic. She's and terrible. It was so painful what she does in that book to I don't want to, to a very important character, right? Yep. And I still, I go back and I'm haunted by that. I'm still disturbed and haunted by what she does. And so it's it's a hard book for me to revisit, even though it's an absolute masterwork, man. That is a masterpiece. So good. Yeah. I mean, just the, you, you generally know the way that story is going to go, but the journey to get there is just, it's something else. Um, and, you know, I'm disappointed that they commissioned that, Dark Tower series for I think it was Amazon Prime and it was going to begin with a retelling of Wizard and Glass and then they ended up shelving it so the fact that we'll never get to well at least not anytime soon we'll, we won't get to see that that's disappointing especially yeah. after the uh, 2017-ish movie that we had to sit through <laughs> I haven't seen it I mean, that's okay <laughs> I, I bought it I, I went to see it in the theater and I was not it just it wasn't it didn't remotely capture the spirit of anything that those books went for. They they tried to ca uh, put seven books, seven like 300 to 1200 page books into a 90 minute movie, which is just objectively a bad idea. Um, it should be an HBO special. 
series. Yeah, uh, yeah, that that would definitely be interesting. Um, so I, I wonder going back to the Raven because you know as as thrilled as I am to talk Stephen King, um, <laughs> it'd be weird if somebody tuned in to find out about Jonathan Jans and they just listened to us talk about Stephen King for two hours. <laughs> um, <laughs> When you were writing The Raven, did you find that, you know, because you, you introduced this idea where um, humanity has, you know, folklore monsters and stuff buried in their genes and the apocalypse is pretty much science unleashing that. Um, was there anything you wanted to put in, in book one and you said, nope, hold back? Or did you kind of do everything you wanted? No, there are definitely some things that I had um, that I wanted to hold back. I mean, maybe I showed a glimpse of them. Um, like there's going to be a book later on where the satyrs um, are very, very featured. And um, I have some specific ideas about what I want to do with that, because that could that could go off the rails really, really easily. Um, but I think that there's a lot like if you do that the right way, there's a lot to be said about that particular kind of beast and, and um, that mythos. Um, so there's a glimpse of the satyrs in one of the characters' backstories. Um, I knew vampires were going to be the lead villains in the second book, so I didn't feature them much. Um, so there were some of the characters, yeah, some of the some of the creatures that I didn't either either didn't mention at all because I'm saving them for later or that I just mentioned fleetingly because I wanted to explore them in greater depth later on. But, but yeah, you do have that kind of kitchen sink feel <laughs> in, in, in one of, you know, in one of the big set pieces is I'm sure you, you remember or know what I'm talking about. Um, yeah. Where there, there are a lot of powers on display and a lot of creatures in the mix. <laughs> yeah. And you know, the, the, I won't spoil it, but there's one, you know, particular creature that's introduced towards the end. And I, I, I said to myself, I said, I did not see that coming out of all the potential, uh, folkloric creatures that we could have had our, our big bad be, that wasn't one I, I pictured, which just absolutely opens the door to, there's just, there's so much you could introduce, you know, when you go to mythologies around the world, will you make this a global thing? Um, I, I am excited out of my mind just thinking about the possibilities, and I know that you've got the wheels turning, uh, and you're partially through book two now. I'm very excited to see where it goes from there. Well, thank you. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, I think that this is a global um, mythology that we're dealing with, and so there's, you know, so much is on the table, so much is possible when you when you look at it through that lens. But yeah, I was honestly, I didn't know for sure. I knew that character. Um, you know, I mean, the, the character to whom we're referring is Keaton, and he's the main villain of the book. He's this flesh peddler. And I, I had a feeling, I, I knew he was, you know, he was not a latent. I knew he was not just a normal human being. I wasn't really sure until maybe halfway through the book and I started writing the character and he started interacting. I'm like, oh my gosh, he's that. And then when I realized it was, then it was a lot of fun to write. But I didn't even know what he was going to be. And kind of like you, for me, that kind of opened things up, too, because I'm like, well, if that's, you know, if that can happen, then then, then this is on the table, too. And I, I do think it stays grounded. I think it fits with the mythos of the of the of the um, tale. Um, but like you said, I think it does do some expanding, which which like you, I'm excited about. I think it's it's going to be a lot of fun. 
the, the whole idea of folklore and horror. And you're absolutely right. Again, I'm going to try and tiptoe around spoilers here, but like the initial ones that you set out, you see vampires, werewolves, things like that. Um, things that have an iteration in most areas of the world. But then you think, okay, again, you, you said the one you saw, well, if I can do, if I can do Keaton this way, then that opens up this, um, this particular, uh, mythology, which means that if this one's on the table, then this one's on the table, then this one's on the table. It's just, oh my gosh, like you, (laughs) you could have a lot of fun and you could do this for years. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. For sure, man. (laughs) Did you work with Don Daria on this one? Um, let's see. It was, I mean, Don ended up, uh, and Flame Tree ended up publishing it, of course. Um, and Don gave me some helpful notes like he always does. Um, it was pretty much polished by the time it got to him. I mean, relatively polished. Um, Don always comes up with some good ideas too, but yeah, I, I think it was, it was pretty well done before that. Um, one guy that really helped a lot, Todd Clark is, is a pre-reader of mine. He helps a lot. Another guy named Tim Slaughter. He's a really helpful guy, but, um, this guy that I'm friends with, because, you know, there, there is, even though it's an intimate story focused on the, the present time, it is necessary to establish how this happened. And I try to do that as expediently as I can. I try not to, I don't devote 100 pages to the apocalypse, but if you don't mention at all how it happens, then it's like, you know, <laughs> I don't, you know the world ended. So important to, to, to at least, you know, start to give some sort of explanation. And I had a friend, I have a friend who is really, um, I, I hear people say this so often, it sounds so false when I say it, but he is a rocket scientist. He works with NASA. And it seems like everybody says that and everybody has a friend who does that. But I promise it's true. And this guy is like, he was explaining, I learned so much and actually lost so much sleep because he was talking about like how fallible our missile defense systems are. So I thought, oh, we're safe. And he's like, no, no, not at all. Like this could happen. And this is what, if you were going to to disperse this virus, this is how you do it. I'm like, well, that seems so easy. He's like, yeah. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) So it's really made me a little paranoid. Um, But, but it was really, he, he's the one BJ, this, this BJ Austin is his name, but he was the one who really helped me a lot with the science um, and really taught me, taught me more than I wanted to know. Actually, (laughs) Spent the last couple of years trying to forget it. Well, those are definitely important because um, basically I forget. One of you probably know. Uh, oh, actually, is Mark Twain. Um, you know, you got to know the facts before you can bend the rules. Something like that. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Because if you start writing about this stuff from a layman's point of view, someone's going to call you out on it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think then that's important too. I think with research, I think it's so important that you know you you stay like in character, okay? So it's like for Des, my protagonist, he's not a scientist. Mm-hmm. So to try to pass him off as one would have seemed really it would have it would have rung false, and I think readers would have really seen that. Um, and sometimes you read a story where an author, you can just tell the author is just showing off what he's learned. Yeah, um, and <laughs> and it's like, okay, dude. All right, we know you read for this. We know you prepared for this. That's great. Let's go on with the story now. You know, because you never want the story to be sacrificed for the research. Mm. But then, if you don't research, then that's gonna 
compromise the story. So it's trying to find a way that it's organic for the, for the, for that research to permeate the story in 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 a way that's not distracting for the reader, where the writer doesn't rear his head. Um, and, and that's always something I, I try to do, um, because I do, I, I felt that was, I'm, I'm not going to say that there's a really, really famous writer who's a great writer, but sometimes I feel like he really starts to just show off how much he's learned in his research. Nobody we've mentioned tonight and nobody I'd ever say, I'm not, I, maybe in private, I'll say it to you guys. <laughs> I'm um, not but, Stephen King then. No, it's not. No, heck no. But it, <laughs> no. Because he's, I feel like when he uses it, he does it with humility. Like it's, you, and he always says it like in his liner notes, right? Like in his acknowledgments, he'll say, if there's something right, it's because of this guy. If it's something wrong, it's because of me, right? I always love that humble tone that he puts it out with. What a concept, humility. Yeah, right? yep. And, and the, the, occasionally, though, you feel like there are uh, authors that want to, you know, just show how much they know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I certainly never want to pass myself off that way as, as some sort of, you know, expert when I'm not. Yeah. Brent, is there anything else on this particular book that you want to talk about? Uh, no, but that's actually a really excellent segue to something else I wanted to talk about. So, I mean, you've got uh, with that, you know, th- with, with your output being that of somebody who only writes and doesn't work a day job, you've got a number of things either – slated at some point to come out or in the works right now. And I think one of the ones that I'm personally most excited about is Amity. And obviously I'm excited about it because Jaws is probably the closest thing we'll get to a perfect horror movie or a perfect movie. Um, But having heard you talk in great length about Jaws on uh, the Necronomicon, your passion for that, you know, makes me think that, your knowledge of that, your understanding of that movie is going to be put into that, um, is going to be written into that book the way that you would write something every day, the way you would write relationships, the way you would write creeping terror. It's just, it's, it's entirely innate. Um, and I'm so interested to see what you can do with that project. Uh, what can you tell us about it? What's well, I love the way you said that. And I think that that's yeah, I think that anything I think, you know, I think that authenticity shines through. Right. And I couldn't talk about every movie the way I talk about Jaws and just because it is like you said, it's I think it's perfect. It's so special. And so the passion is real. And so when I write about that, like the characters themselves are mostly Jaws fans. So it's going to make sense for them. One of them, like there's a character who's a, uh, he, he's he's on the, so, okay, so should I give you a synopsis? I don't know. Do, should I talk yeah, about it? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. So, so basically there's uh, the, these two characters. They're, they're not the main characters, but they're important to the story. There's a billionaire who dies and his um, irresponsible son uh, and inherits everything. He's got a, a younger sister who's 17, and she doesn't yet have any power. She's a major character, though. She's a, she's a more important character than he is. But he and his buddy, who is the son of... Uh, okay, so the billionaire who dies owns an island. And um, the irresponsible son and his best friend want to... They've Their lifelong dream is to transform the island into a replica of Amity Island from Jaws, 
also, though, with a huge amusement park devoted to Jaws. And the, the, the irresponsible son's best friend is kind of like the one pushing all this. He's not the one with the money, but he manipulates his friend who has the money. The best friend is the um, son of the nearby coastal town's mayor. Okay, so there's a mayor, of course, in this, and it's a dying coastal town, who, and they need summer dollars. <laughs> and the um, and the son of that mayor is the one kind of pushing for this whole amusement park the most. Okay, he's manipulating everything, um, and so the story begins like um, two weeks before the park opens, and it's like a disaster because um, it's not being run well. Horrible decisions are being made. The, the two people co-running it are the son of the mayor, who is this greedy, conniving jerk, and then this um, woman. And I don't, not not to get too political here, but I'm not a fan of Betsy DeVos. Um, she no did, way. <laughs> How dare you? I know. The patience. <laughs> Follow-up question: How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> named Betsy here. Um, I don't actually. I don't know if I am, but she she's she's the other one who's been brought in to manage this this amusement park, and um, and she's horrible. And so um, so those are the two that are preparing it. So my main character, um, Nick Shaw. Of course, you guys know where Shaw comes from. Um, Nick Shaw gets brought in by the mayor, who's actually a decent guy. There's a little bit of irony, right? He gets brought in to try to bring order to this disaster about to happen, this amusement park about to open. Um, so he's one of the main characters. The 17-year-old um, little sister is another main character because she's a really good person who knows so much more than her brother does. And then the third main character is Sylvie Perez, and she is the police chief of this nearby coastal town. All right. Um, and so she's going to be, um, so there, there are three real protagonists who kind of share the, um, so she's the police chief. Um, and then, yeah, so, so all of these, they, they connect to Jaws characters. Um, and it's its own story, but it's certainly a love letter to Jaws. It's a suspense thriller. There's nothing supernatural about it. It's all suspense. It's all of our world. Um, but it's definitely a horror novel too. Um, and it's, I don't know. I think, I think, there, I, I feel like it has a sense of humor, um, but I also feel like it works as a thriller. And it's been – it's so big right now, though, guys. It's like 170,000 words. Holy shit. It's really wonderful. <laughs> so I'm, I don't know when it's going to be ready. My goal is to have it ready by the time Jaws' 50th anniversary, which is like 2025. So it might not come out for a while. I mean, I hope it's not that long. But um, it's going to be a couple years before I have it ready. These other projects I have, I think I'm going to be able to have in shape before that one just because it's so long. And, and there are actually like two climaxes to the story right now. And I'm not sure if I'm going to end it after the first one or include the second one. There's so much for me to do. And there's a lot of work here to, do, to be done on Amity. But, but the, the point is the bones of the story are really good. And I'm really proud of it. Yeah. Sounds pretty. I, was, I, I didn't know that synopsis. That sounds really cool. I think that's more than I've ever talked about it. So there you go. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, I probably like, I, I didn't prepare my elevator pitch. So sorry, it wasn't very concise, um, but I've never talked about it that much. So that's, yeah, it's two, kind of to talk about. Two exclusives on our show. Just one quick question about it is where's it based? Uh, off of Virginia. Um, okay. Yeah. I love, I love Virginia, man. Mm. Uh, so it's, yeah, there's this mythical Island off of the coast of Virginia um, that's, that's being turned into Amity. Cool. 
Yeah. I was kind of wondering when and if we would ever get like a Jan's doorstop novel, like a, <laughs> yeah. like a, like a 400, five page, 500 or more. Uh, yeah. Hey, this could be it. And I'll read that. I'll read that. <laughs> I could be it. I could be the doorstop. <laughs> All right. So, uh, yeah, sign Jan's up for 2024 or 2025 on the show. <laughs> So you were kind of leaning in towards other books, um, which I really wanted to talk about, two in particular, but the one that would apply to this month is Halloween Gods, and you've talked about it on other shows, so I'm not really asking you to talk about anything you don't want to talk about or repeat, but if you would want to talk about a quick synopsis just to entice people who haven't heard it yet, because I've got follow-up questions I don't think you've been asked for uh, about with uh, the theme of Halloween. I'm so excited about it. I'm yeah. so excited about it. Um, guys, every time I write a book, um, I think that this is the book that's going to end my career. Um, I think it's every time I write one, I think this is awful. Like when I wrote Siren and the Spectre, the two of the books I felt worst about were Siren and the Spectre and Children of the Dark. I was I had a meltdown with Children of the Dark. I'm like, this is going to be the most people are going to laugh at me. People are going to hate this. There's not going to the best review will be two stars. Um, this is just going to be. <laughs> and then when and Siren and the Spectre, I just felt like I I it was I, I just had created a disaster after the rough draft. And then I ended up I'm I'm those are two of my favorite books now. Okay, so it's not normal for me to be excited about like something this early in the process, but I'm editing, I'm in my first run through on Halloween gods right now. I'm so excited about it. Um, I'm not going to sit here and say that it's the best book ever written or whatever, but it's, I'm, I'm more excited on reading through the first draft than I've ever been about any book I've ever read. Um, I just really, I'm so excited. I wrote um, a quick, I was talking to um, Mallerman earlier today and um, told him, uh, I sent him a synopsis, um, and it's pretty short. So if you want to hear it, um, here we go. Uh, so is it okay? It's like yeah, no, yeah, we're we're listening, dude. I, I we're both very excited to hear it. Uh, for eleven months, the house remains dormant, nestled in the forest and fortified by towering wrought iron fencing. But every year on October first, it comes to life. Suffocated by their small town, which is being held hostage by bullying upperclassmen and a child kidnapper labeled the body snatcher, five teenagers drive to the October house and find its gates open for the first time. They enter the property as frightened, deeply troubled kids. They leave with talents, supernatural abilities that will grow stronger until reaching their apex on Halloween. But when they realize how evil humankind can be, the teens will have to choose between using their gifts for justice or revenge. All right. So that's like the, the quick, the quick synopsis of it. But um, I really feel like these five teens, these five main characters, it alternates between or among these five characters. Um, I just really like them. I like them. I, I think that they're complex characters, but I think they're very authentic characters. Um, there is something of me in each one, even though three of them are female and two are male. Um, I, I just I feel like they are they, they ring true. Their characters ring true. And I like that they're very they're very few moments 
I mean, I'm going to trim it. It's like 130,000 words now, and I'm going to try to make it muscular. I'm going to try to get it way down um, to maybe like 90 or 95. Um, but I just feel like the story is there. And it's like, as I read it, there's so much more that I like than I don't like. And guys, I never feel that way. So I'm, I'm more excited about Halloween gods maybe than I've been about any rough draft I've ever done. Wow. Um, for starters, body snap, the body snatch is such a cool name, man. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. I like the, yeah. Jack Finney was invasion of the body snatchers. Jack Finney. Yeah. Yeah. Body Snatcher was it Robert Louis Stevenson? I think wrote a story called the Body Snatcher. I've always loved that phrase. I've always loved the Body Snatcher, man. So go ahead. Sorry, didn't, didn't mean to interrupt. I, I like the synopsis. I like that name too. Um, I really don't have any more questions about your the book because I don't I don't want to have anything ruined. It sounds like something that's very um, in, intriguing, and your general attitude and excitement towards it makes me excited. So I can't wait for that. But actually, since this is coming out in October, and we are recording in October, I had a few questions pertaining to Halloween. Before I ask those, Brent, do you want to talk a little bit about this book? Do you have any questions for Jonathan? I, I would just, I would just say that you know when I when I'm listening to that synopsis, like if I listened to that without the title of the book handy, and you said the October House, I would say that's the title. But then as soon as you hit me with <laughs> Halloween Gods, no, 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 that's the title. That's a really cool name. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's like you, you're just you're you're lining up the like snippets there. It's awesome, awesome. I, I, I can't wait for that. Well, thank you. And I think I did the same thing with the title. Like the October House was one that I considered. I liked it. I like that. It's a good title. Um, and and it reminds me of Bradbury. You know, mm-hmm. Bradbury is a major influence on me, and it's a ma- he's a major influence on this book. And he wrote the October Country and Something Wicked This Way Comes. He's like Mr. Halloween, and that's that's what they call the guy who owns the October House. They call him <laughs> this until they meet. Okay, and then, then then he gets a name, but in the beginning they just call him Mr. Halloween because that's the legend around him. But anyway, yeah, and then but then Halloween Gods. Um, you know, again, I don't mean to sound like a tool here, but I like that title too. I think it's a good title. So I think it's the right book with the right title at the right time. I just, I'm really, I'm pumped. So thank you for saying that. I can see it across the the top of a book. And like, that's for me when I, I am so bad. I, I hate coming up with titles. I'm so bad at it and I just don't like doing it. So like, if I can, when I come up with one I like, if I can kind of picture it like gracing the top of a book, I'm like, okay, that's the one. Nice. And Halloween Gods definitely fits that bill. Yeah, as soon as I saw you announce, I was like, that's such a cool name, man. <laughs> so I have a few questions. So let's have let's have a little fun with this. Uh, first question is, and Brennan, please jump in at any point. Uh, do you have any favorite Halloween memories as a child? Oh, I'm sorry, Jonathan. <laughs> um, I remember once I had so my birthday is October 27th, so I always like had a birthday slash Halloween celebration. Nice. Um, yeah, I mean like a sleepover. I shouldn't make it like it was a big deal, but I had a sleepover, and then my friends and I. I remember. Um, <laughs> I, I remember. I don't one, know why it's funny, but it's funny. <laughs> it's things that are kind of funny because like one of them was. Um, my friends wanted to go corning, like throwing corn, like that had been like you know whatever shucked, shucked off the off the um, cob, you know like hard corn, throw it at houses, 
That was something that like, I was a fourth grader, okay, but they wanted to go corning. Was that and, Max Booth the third that suggested that to you as a kid? <laughs> I, mean, I, I, it's, I don't know why that was like the appealing thing, but it was like something. And my mom was like the nicest. She was younger than the other moms. She was 21 when she had me. So, you know, at that point I was a fourth grader. So I would have been, what, 10? So she was like 30, 31. Anyway, she was like um, trying to make sure that we she, – she knew about it. And my friends couldn't believe that she knew about it. And they couldn't believe we didn't have to sneak out. Because they were like being all subterricious, you know, uh, about it. And they were like, dude, you know, we can't. And my mom was like, do you guys have all that you need for corning? (laughs) (laughs) She can't. She knows. Uh, And I remember that we went out and started throwing the corn at people's houses. I wasn't a hellion. I wasn't like a a, whatever, a destructive kid. It's a rapscallion. Yeah, one of the few acts of rebellion. (laughs) Um, but, But I remember the police like came by. And, and they were shining their lights and I was hiding. I don't think I'd ever been that scared because I was sure I was going to get arrested at age 10. And then we ended up running. I set the world land speed record record going home. But I was just that's that's one Halloween memory. One of my few little rebellious acts as a kid. And I think I threw like a total of one handful of corn at somebody's siding um, before I got really uncomfortable and then eventually was chased home by the police. All right. Well, you guys tell a better story. You got something better. Oh, than man. Uh, oh, okay. I, I didn't oh, – the tables are turned. Brennan, why don't you go? <laughs> um, You know, my, my – I grew up in this real white bread town, and nothing interesting ever happened. The one – and, and it's not even eventful, but the one thing I remember always, like urban legend or whatever, I always remember talking about – I would always go with a group of three friends, and I think that our houses were probably, like, at most a mile and a half away, like, the furthest two. Um, So we would go to the neighborhood around one of ours, and then the next one, and the next one. And there was a cemetery near one of my friend's houses, and we heard this urban legend that on Halloween that it would be – inhabited with members of the Latin Kings gang, which given the town I grew up in was absolutely not true. And I don't know why we ever believed it. Um, but we would, the, the quickest way to get from one neighborhood to the other was to cut through this cemetery. And we would always just run like absolute hell, completely convinced that we were going to get jumped by a gang. Um, and the, the happy ending is we never did. No gang, no gang activity ever. Uh, just candy and you know, moderate shenanigans. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. All right, Patrick, you had time to think. Also, you came up with the question, so I mean, you, you I, probably should have <laughs> prepared I, something. Well, I got one that has no real ending, uh, and then I got a one that's probably a fun memory. So I got an answer. The first one was. Uh, so I live in a I lived in a, grew up in a town called Bridgewater. Um, it's been mentioned there's a state prison in there. Uh, it, it's been mentioned as like a background thing on like a Mindhunter that show on uh, Netflix. Um, so maybe it sounds familiar, but it's based off of the actual prison. Well, anyways, uh, I live like. My parents' house is maybe two miles from the prison. And one, one night on Halloween, turns out there was a prisoner that escaped. 
So I don't remember what happened with me specifically because I was too young, but I, I just remember I was dressed up like a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. I was ready to get some candy, and I, I don't think I got candy that night. <laughs> but, but the good story, the full story, um, the other one, was uh, I won a Halloween contest for my town. Um, you, Whoever decorated the whoever basically had the coolest decorations and i've always loved halloween my mom's always been supportive of that and my dad has as well and i just remember like college kids when i was in grammar school would like this one in a kiddie pool i had um to the entrance of the door would be just filled with sand have this old school hockey mask that my dad used to have when he played hockey and uh would have the gloves and it'd be it would look like he was just in the in the quicksand trying to uh, grasp the you know final breaths of air that he could get before he was sucked in. Uh, I would dress up and scare people, and I would just go crazy with decorating the house. And um, I won a contest where I was uh, interviewed by the local news and just talked about it. I don't remember what I said. I wish I had that footage, but. That's a fun memory. I, I was like, this is cool. I'm being recognized as like, hey, you do this thing that's kind of weird, but which is neat because what other genre has an entire month where it's celebrated throughout the world? Like romance. Yeah, you got Valentine's Day, but we're not celebrating that stuff. You know, um, the Western doesn't sci-fi doesn't Halloween, man. That's horror. Yeah. And it's it's insane to me how many people say they don't like horror. They like stick their noses up at it, but like everyone loves horror in one way or another. Like everyone does, man. And they just don't realize it because they view horror like I've gotten like, oh, you like horror? You write it? They're they're just thinking it's like blood and gore, and we're just crazy people. Um, super side note: when I was selected for a juror, the only time. Uh, they asked what my hobbies are, and I said, well, I, I write and I read uh, horror and uh, some sci-fi and fantasy. And in my head, I'm like, the moment I say horror, I'm not going to get selected. I'll get to go home. I was selected, so I was like, oh, damn it. I thought they weren't going to pick because of that. But, yeah, that's it. Uh, my follow-up question was if you have a favorite uh, costume. That's it. Jonathan or Brennan, just if you have a favorite costume that you've ever worn, or you know what, let's make it more interesting. Uh, if you've had a favorite set of costumes, if you've ever done one with your family, your wife and kids, either either one of you. Yeah, I I tell you what, looking back, this was embarrassing at the time. I remember, you guys remember Jake the Snake Roberts? Have you ever heard of him? He was in the, the wrestler. The wrestler. Yep. Okay. So I was into that. I was in the WWF is what it was called back when I was uh, like a seventh, sixth or seventh grader. And I had changed schools and there was at my old school, there was a Halloween party and I thought everybody's going to dress up. And I had this vision to be Jake the snake. And so <laughs> my mom to go by me said, Jake, the snake wore these tights that had like a snake wrapping around the leg. And um, my mom, we were poor, and she was so nice and supportive. I was like, Mom, can you find me these like spandex wrestling tights with, with Jake the Snake? And this wasn't back when you ordered things off of Amazon, right? This is when you had to drive to the mall and go from store to store. 
couldn't find anything, so she just got me black sweatpants and then this um, satin red fabric, and she cut out a snake and sewed it around the leg um, of that. And then, you know, I look like a total idiot. Um, and, 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 and it was freezing cold. And it, maybe that saved me because I, if I would have gone shirtless like Jake the Snake, I would have ended up being more than an idiot. But I wore a black sweatshirt with a red snake on him. And then my friend and I, who also dressed up, we like painted our faces, my friend from my new school, and we go to my old school and we're the only two dressed up. <laughs> The snake around my leg, it's falling off because it was coming unpinned. And my, you know, we're wearing face paint and we look like fools. So, even though, <laughs> you know, looking back, it was mortifying at the time, but looking back, I'm so, I'm like, what a cool mom. It was so nice of her to put all yeah. that and to try to sew that for me. So, that meant a lot. And then with my own kids, uh, I've done like zombie makeup for them, and that's fun. And I, my son was Pennywise one year, that was fun. So, <laughs> It's always a blast to do that kind of stuff. All right, you guys go ahead. Brendan. My my 10-year-old is going to be Pennywise this year. Um he's yeah. he's he's he loves those movies. I he just started watching the videos on YouTube and we were like, "We should real, you know, whatever." You know, it's, it's if if we if we if we say no, he's still going to watch them on YouTube. I suppose we could get YouTube kids, but he he seems fine with it. So he doesn't, you know, go around uh mimicking it or anything, but um so I think that the Ninja Turtles cartoon, the one with the legendary theme song and Uncle Phil playing the voice of Shredder came out in 87. So I would have been about three years old. Um, And I'm pretty sure I dressed up as a Ninja Turtle every year from four until probably at least 12. Just that that's. You know, you want to try something different this year? No, I do not. I'll I'll change the color of my bandana if you like, but um, tip it. it, it I, I'm going to be a turtle again this year. You know, I'll need a sword this year because I'm Leonardo. Um, I'll need nunchucks. <laughs> and you know what? That that was fine. I eventually got to a point where, like, you know, everybody, you know, this person's dressed as a zombie. This person's dressed as a. Uh, as, as you know, Michael Myers and I'm still got like these like Ninja Turtle pajamas on and a plastic sword. And I'm like, no, nope, cool. I'm fine. <laughs> I'm good with it. This is what I want. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I got two quick ones. One, cause they're both fun. And I think you both would enjoy at least one of them. Uh, the last year, my wife, uh, she came, I'm, I'm originally from Massachusetts. she, uh, it's from Jersey. That's why I'm down in South Jersey now. But uh, she uh, went to college in Providence, so she lived off campus uh, with her girlfriends um, on camp uh, in in Providence. Um, and it, it was neat because, like, side note, I, I know he's, like, got a lot of issues, but I thought it was cool how there was little bits of artwork of Lovecraft near her house. I really enjoyed that. Um but I dressed up as Walter White, a.k.a. Heisenberg, and I shaved my head in real life, so that worked. I normally have a beard. Uh, I had a goatee just for that night because my wife's like, don't really like it. I'm like, all right, bye, goatee. <laughs> but uh, I got the glasses and whatnot, and uh, I just remember we got this rock candy that was blue, and we said it was Walter's Treats. And everyone that came to the party thought it was fun. And because he, he's a psycho and like, I'm just a big goofy teddy bear, such as yourself, John. Um, 
I don't know if I've told you that, but <laughs> but I just remember at one point I was very hot. I was in that hazmat suit. I had like a white T-shirt, a white wife beater with a the yellow hazmat suit on. And I'm like, I got to go outside. And my friend smokes cigarettes. So he's like, oh, I'll go for a smoke. So we're out in the front. It's right on a public street sidewalk that's like, you know, four feet wide. This car pulls up onto the curb. This random dude's just rolling down his window. He's got the same hazmat suit pulled down. And um, he's like, hey, yo, you're, a, you're an Ebola worker, right? And that's when Ebola was really big. And, <laughs> and I'm like... Sure. Yeah. And then he drove off. I'm like, that was weird. <laughs> and I had been drinking that night, so I, I'm sure it played out a little bit more exaggerated in my head at the time. <laughs> but the the funnest costume that I was uh, dressed as was Michael Myers. I had the mask. I had the uniform. And this is weird. I don't know why this happened. I went to a friend's house in a neighborhood that was surrounded by trees. Lots of like basically a labyrinth of streets of the suburban Massachusetts area. Um, I guess it could pass for Haddonfield. Um, It was dark and I don't know why, but my friend wasn't there. So I was like, I'm just going to walk around. That's all I did. And there were parents that were like, oh, it's so cool. It's Michael Myers. And kids were like freaked out. (laughs) And in my head. Like I, that's what really hooked me into horror in my, from the age of 12 on was watching slashers and I love Halloween, the series. And, uh, I was like, this is working. Siri just came on. Uh Oh, I'm being tracked. I don't know if you guys heard that, but Siri just popped on. Not, not sure why. So that was it. It was just me walking around a neighborhood being creepy without a knife. Uh, and parents thought it was awesome. The kids were terrified of me. So that's, yeah, (laughs) um i just had one more question i'm actually really curious i have not heard you say this before maybe i missed it but do you have a favorite halloween themed movie um this is like the ultimate cop-out but you know you were just talking about it i love halloween yeah (laughs) Uh, i love i love that movie that is such a lean mean thriller it's it's a work of art um Mm. also like, and it's, I don't think it has the, I don't think it's as, I don't know. I mean, that, for, for me, it's like Jaws is on its own level with just a couple other movies, but Halloween is one of the best thrillers and horror movies, suspense movies ever made. Um, it's just so relentless. And John Carpenter is, he, he, it's so perfect the way he withheld Michael and what, when he revealed Michael and how he showed that 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 villain and the the music he used yeah. it's just so it's it's so beautifully done i know that's like the cop-out answer but i think it is still it's the best halloween movie i can think of um and it's one of my favorite horror movies of all time i love it it only gets better with age that's not a cop it's really it's a classic for a reason i i also happen to be if i had to pick one i think i'd go with two because it's basically extension. It's an extension of one, and I love one too. And and you know this is a weird answer. I didn't accept this for my own personal view for a while, but I really like three. And I didn't like it because I fought with myself. I'm like, but Michael's not even in it. They just show a clip on a TV screen of him. Um, yeah, one's a classic. Uh, Brennan, what is your choice? 
what is my favorite Halloween themed movie that doesn't have Halloween in the title, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know what? I, I'm going to go with Hocus Pocus. <laughs> I I loved that movie growing up and my boys absolutely dig it. So it's had kind of a resurgence in my house year round for the last probably two, three years. And it's there's a reason it's still around. You know, I think that came out in like 93. It it hits all the notes. It's got good, good uh, music in it. It's got like Bette Midler is just fantastic in it. It's a good story. And of course, it's got that hometown vibe because it takes place in Salem. I got one complaint with that. There's no Boston accent, man. We're from that area. I don't hear any Boston accent from any character. That's not a complaint. That's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It'd dumb it down. If they, if they saturate it with Boston accents, it never would have lasted past That's 90 true. Feet. You know what? Yeah. I don't know about you, Jonathan, how you feel about your own local uh, accents. But uh, for me, I, lo- like, I love Marky Mark. I love Matt Damon and Affleck. But, like, I'm glad I don't have the accent as thick as some of my friends because I feel like I'd kind of come off as – this is going to sound so rude, but a little less intelligent than I am. So it's a low bar, man. <laughs> um, I, where we're from, we're definitely, we don't feel that way about your accent. I can tell you that. At least I don't. I think it sounds kind of, I don't know, like when you hear Matt Damon and Ben Affleck and Goodwill Hunting, it's kind of like this sounds cool and tough and streetwise. Yeah. You know, not unintelligent. At least that's not how it sounds to my ears. I'm just thinking of clips from Family Guy, so my my sample is terrible. It, oh. it does have that kind of that that kind of tough guy like working class attitude to it. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way to look at it, actually. In all seriousness, my answer has the word Halloween in it. It's Halloween Town, <laughs> the Disney movie. <laughs> I haven't seen that. I haven't seen oh. Hocus Pocus. I haven't seen either of those movies. Oh, I think your family would really that'd be a family movie, man. Hocus yep. Pocus. There's yep. a lot less stabbing in it than Halloween, but <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it seems like it could definitely be up your alley. Um, although I know I've heard you talk about how uh, sometimes you're not allowed to watch certain movies because you get emotional and everybody gets upset with that. But uh, that that Hocus Pocus could possibly push you into that territory at a couple parts. So I don't mm-hmm. I don't want to take the blame if that happens. <laughs> My daughters are going to come looking for you. They're the ones. They're the- <laughs> police they do not like it my son always defends me man he's like it's cool dad don't you're fine you're fine and my daughter's like oh come on dad stop is there anything that you want to um maybe announce or cover uh jonathan before we wrap up we've actually been talking for (laughs) almost two hours now yeah this has been a blast no i don't really have anything um to cover just uh I hope you all listening to this or watching this. I hope you guys read The Raven. I'm really excited about it. I've started work on the sequel, and I am very happy with the way that's going. Um, But no, I've just had a blast. So I, you guys, that was awesome. I loved, I loved the questions you guys asked. Um, uh, I thought we, I don't know. I, I thought we went to some interesting areas. It's always fun to cover material you haven't covered before, and I think we we've also done that, which is a blast. This has been as fun as I was hoping it would be. Um, just, I echo what you said. I had a good time. Um, 
and we we definitely want you back uh, whenever you know you have a new book out. So that's like twice a year. Mark it. <laughs> <laughs> now, now speaking of, I would be I, I don't expect an answer, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask if you had any updates on release for uh, the Dismembered or Children of the Dark Two. Yeah, uh, the Dismembered. I, I'm pretty sure is 2021. Mm-hmm. Pretty sure. Um, I hope so. Yeah, me too. I love that cover. <laughs> I'm very fond of the book, obviously, and Cemetery Dance is amazing. So I'm looking forward to that. And then uh, Children of the Dark 2, that is the million-dollar question. Not really sure when that's going to come out yet. It's just, it's painful because there are a billion ways to do that. And there are a lot of possibilities with how I could do that or with whom I could work. Um, I just haven't made a decision yet. Ryan and I, Ryan is my manager, and he and I have talked a lot about it and we kind of have some ideas but we're both kind of just kind of waiting and uh and we're gonna see uh but it you know whenever it gets published i think people will like it i'm really proud of it i'm i I think it it turned out better than i than i could have hoped it would so um yeah i appreciate you asking and I wish I had a better answer. I feel like a politician. <laughs> no, 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 that's okay. That's, you gave me the exact answer I expected, but I yeah. had to throw it out there on the off chance where, you know, you came in with, hey, now that you mention it, we just set a date of February 20. 20- no, um, <laughs> I, I'm looking forward to both. You're right. That that cover on the Dismembered is fantastic. And obviously, Cemetery Dance has that rep. Like, they've got to be a great press to work with. Yeah. And you know, the second I turned the last page on Children of the Dark and found out you were working on a sequel, I've been ready for that. <laughs> awesome to hear, man. I appreciate it. And I, hope, I do hope I have news soon, but I, I just appreciate everybody who wants to read it. So that's, it's, I always take that in a really, really positive way. So I love it when people ask. Where can people follow you? Yeah, I think the best place, I've got a website, jonathanjans.com, but uh, it's not updated as often as it should. I mean, you can go there to sign up for my newsletter is probably the best reason to go there. So I would do that. Sign up for my newsletter for sure. I don't, I don't do it that often. I probably, <laughs> probably I'm only averaging, I don't know, four or five a year. But, um, you know, I, I feel like there's always meaningful stuff in there, at least meaningful to me. So follow me up at my newsletter, um, which you can find on my website. And then other than that, I'm on I'm active on Twitter, uh, Jonathan Jans, and then Instagram and to a lesser degree Facebook. I'm on there less and less, but I still am on there sometimes. But definitely Twitter and Instagram are good places to follow me and sign up for the newsletter. Yeah. Fantastic. And just before we go, me and Brennan made a conscious had a conscious discussion to mention this at the very end that we have noticed a really rapid increase in one country that's got downloads way more than I ever expected. That is India through uh, the um, service Ghana. That is a platform that is India based. It's their largest uh, streaming service. Um, We notice we just want to let anyone know that is listening from uh, that service or is from India that has listened to this show Uh, has listened to this episode in particular we would like you to get in touch with us uh reach out to jonathan too because i'm sure he'd appreciate a fan base out there um not to imply he doesn't but to follow us you can follow us on twitter that is our most active uh, place we go it is a dead underscore headspace spelt like it sounds 
We appreciate your time, Jonathan. I stick to my statement that you are the sweetheart of the horror community. Um, I just appreciate you talking to us, man. You're, you're very, very nice and uh, very good at what you do. So please keep it up. I am kissing your ass, though. It's it's gonna. I, I give shits what people think about me. <laughs> <laughs> what a what a terrible way to end an episode. Oh no. <laughs> No, I, you're very kind, and it's, I'm, I consider you both friends. So, both of you, I appreciate taking the time because this is your your time is as valuable as mine. Um, I'm honored to be on the show, and I had a blast. And you guys do a fantastic job. So, thank you for your kindness, and thanks for um, trying to take my rambling and making something semi coherent. I appreciate it, Brennan. I don't want to stop recording unless you got something to say, man. No, no, I'm good. I would echo all that. Thank you for your time stuff. Um, we appreciate you making the time for us. You have been uh, somebody we wanted to make sure we got on here since day one, and it's yeah. it's awesome that we were able to make it happen. Yeah, you and Josh Malman were a bucket list item, as were a few people that we can uh, talk about off here. Uh, Jonathan Jans, check him out. He has the Raven that just came out. Many more books to come out. I wasn't joking. He's got about two books that come out a year uh, per year. Uh, Brennan, thank you as always for your time. Couldn't make a good show without you, sir. Uh, John, thank you, sir. Um, and all our listeners, especially the new ones in India or who listen through Ghana, thank you so much. We notice we want to hear from you, so please reach out. We are in your mind. We are all around. You are now leaving Deadhead Space. What the? That's a new sound. <laughs> Boy. You turned blue for a moment. That was, cool. uh, that was weird. You smurfed. <laughs>